If you would bow with me. Father, we ask for wisdom from on high. We ask for hearts that would see that what you desire most is a church that is filled with both leaders and individuals in that church that embody what it means to dwell in the temple, to behold the wonder of Christ, to be in awe of His purposes, to minister to the needs of the church, to encourage them to run the race set before them, to be a light to the nations. We pray, Lord, whenever we stray in our task, that you would confront us, comfort us in your love, and send us back out to be light. Lord, I pray if there's someone here today who's dead in their sins, separated from the life of Christ, without hope in this world. I pray you would turn them to repentance and faith, that they would put their hope in the gospel, that they would know that Jesus is the only way. He is the only sufficient Savior, that his blood was shed so that they could be, their blood wouldn't be shed, so that they could have life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In Mark, we um, are looking at back at this today, and what we see is like three, we're reminded of, is three times that Jesus said he's going to suffer, die, and rise again. And they have uh, struggled with this, but now um, it's kind of, it's coming to tr- fruition, I guess you would say. And we're in the last week of Jesus' life on this earth. And in this last week, we've been kind of looking at it and thinking about it. And you, I mean, if you look at, at it and you consider it, you realize that Jesus is going in and out of Jerusalem, and he's traveling from the temple and then back to the temple, and he does this several times. And we looked last week at two trips, and we saw those trips. The first was kind of, they're welcoming him in, but then he ends up all alone in the temple by himself. The second visit is a confrontation. And when you look at that, you realize that Jesus is running the money changers out and the merchants out of the temple, but he's like condemning it completely. And so that is on display before us. And then in between, kind of like uh, some people call it like a sandwich in between that, uh, in the outline, if you, were, if you were looking at it, you saw this, this parable, and this parable is of a fig tree. And the fig tree is cursed by Jesus, and then they see that it's, you know, because it was fruitless, and then they see that it is um, basically dying, it's withering away. And what you find out is, is this is symbolic of the temple. The temple has been cursed. It's, it's done away with. Now, as you think about that, then he will talk about the fruitfulness of the temple, and he, the new temple, and he will say, like, this is what it means, like, for God to usher in a new age. He's bringing about a new temple It will be the church, and all things will be restored. And so we have been, like I said, Jesus in his last week, he's going to the temple. He goes there twice. Uh, Now he's going to go on his third visit, 
And when he goes there on his third visit, he's going to address the problem of the religious leaders in the, the group there. There's religious leaders kind of waiting on him. Since he kind of went through and ran all those people out, they want to meet him and they want to talk to him. And he's had trouble with them along the way. And today we're going to see that Jesus is going to uh, address the problem of the religious leaders, and then there's going to be a solution to them. He is going to replace them, and he's going to replace them with the apostles and those who will follow him. So you might say, if you're looking at this section, we have the confrontation of the clergy, and then a counter by Jesus. He has a counter, counter remarks. Then you have the condemnation of the clergy, and then you have the replacement of the clergy. That, that's kind of the way that fits together, and, and you're going to be like, well, what is that all about? How does that relate to my life? We just were singing songs that tell you about how that relates to your life. But I think it's important just to say, uh, before we get started, Jesus is the new temple. And he's the cornerstone that the leaders had rejected. The apostles, we'll see this in text, are the foundation stones. And the church are living stones. That's what the scripture says. And so, what that tells us is, that we have access to God. We are in his temple. When we are gathering here and singing those praises, we are spiritually, the scripture speaks of us being in Christ in the heavenly places. We are with him. We have access in the Holy of Holies. When we pray, we can pray for one another and it will be heard. God is there. He's listening. We are near to him. We know that Jesus is our final sacrifice. There's no more sacrifices needed that we can say, you know what, even when I feel like I'm not forgiven, I am forgiven if I've turned to Christ in forgiveness. We also could say, you know what, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently, and so he is always ministering on our behalf. He is praying on our behalf for us. And so that thing's important. So we know we're in his presence, we are near to him, we have access, we have no more sacrifices needed. We come into that place, and it's a beautiful thing. We are temple stones, and we are priests unto God if you're in Christ today. If you're not, you're outside of him. But if you are, you're a priest ministering in the temple, living a life of worship before God, blessing one another and seeking to bless uh, all those around you and be a light to the nations. And so when you're thinking about that, I think it's important to say, okay, we're talking about Jesus in the temple. We have this confrontation and this counter and then the condemnation, and then it's going to finish up with a replacement. And you're the replacement. You're a part of that replacement. The apostles, the church, all of us here that are in Christ, you're a part of that replacement, ministering before the Lord, to the Lord on behalf of others also, uh, before the watching world. And that's important for us to know. So there's an issue here, and there's an issue over authority. And the question is, it's like there's 53 references to authority in, this, uh, the, in the Gospels, and they're mostly about Jesus. And so you kind of have to say to yourself, okay, authority's a big deal. And the issue with these leaders are, like, what authority does he do these things that he's doing? How does he get to do that? You know, and you may have been around someone like that before. Like, you, they say, you don't have any authority. You can't tell me that. You can't say this or this or whatever to me. Well, the deal is, is, is Jesus, we see throughout, is he is one, the, the, the people see he has authority. There's a Gentile centurion who said, you have the authority to speak healing, and, and healing will take place. There's a time when uh, Jesus 
uh, says that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. That's another huge deal. And in the same story, the crowds were afraid and they glorified God and said, I've never seen such authority. Over and over and over, there's authority. And we see that in Matthew's gospel. Um, Jesus had the ability to give his own disciples authority and they even exercised his authority. So authority is a big deal. If you go to Mark, we see that, this, the, again, that the crowds have this thing where they see authority. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. All of that. He has authority over the demons. So his authority is kind of, it may be questioned, but it's not real. Because he has all authority to do these things. Now, in John's gospel, it says, When the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And so Jesus, submitting to the Father, he exercises the Father's authority, and he even gives out that authority, and he demonstrates his authority. So the heart of this thing is about his authority. He's going into the temple, and he's, he's like showing you what the temple is, laying the temple aside, and setting up something new, and he has the authority to do it. So let's look at this confrontation and the counter. Verse 27 and 28, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as they were walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority uh, to do them? And so again, they're questioning it. This is the Sanhedrin, chief priests, scribes, elders. We've talked about that. They are the leaders. Uh, they have been given, I guess you could say in a way, or taken authority. And Jesus is infinitely wise, and he's going to deal with their question and he's going to deal with it differently. So they're asking that question of authority. He is going to address why he has the authority to do what he does, to say what he says, to decide on, on, on issues and all of those things. So because they were kind of spiritual authorities, the people would look to them and wonder about what they were saying and, and really had respected them and probably in some ways feared them. And so Jesus is sitting there, and they know that, like, they're afraid that, that Jesus is going to come after their place. And so they're afraid of that. And so instead of running away, they go to fight him, and they seek to destroy him. I was thinking this week about uh, the Pope when Martin Luther was uh, fighting against the, the, the corrupted system. The Pope said, a wild boar has invaded the vineyard. If you know that. And I think that's helpful. That's what they think of Jesus. A wild boar... Uh, boar has come into the vineyard and he's trying to destroy it and take our authority with him basically yeah so we, we look at this and we consider it and what they're really wanting to do is say you know what let's see if we can make him be like the blasphemer so let's let's see if we can call him a blasphemer and if we do call him a blasphemer uh, we know that ultimately uh, we'll be able to put him to death but Jesus won't respond to their questions and, and he's going to, to really respond with a question. And so instead of being drawn into their net, he's going to use a common tactic among the rabbis and he's going to confront uh, them. And so I think it's just important to see that and understand. Now, is there a time where Jesus is going to respond to that question? Yes. You can write down Mark 14, uh, 61 through 64, and you'll see that. You'll see him respond, and then they will say, oh, he's deserving of death, but it was at the time, the right time. So let's look at verse 29. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, you answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with themselves. 
Because Jesus is like, they, these are really smart people. They think about all different types of things. They've trained in discussing issues and problems. And they say, if we, why then did he, not, did, I'm sorry, he will say, if we say from heaven, why then did you not believe him? But shall he say from man, they were afraid the people, for, of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority that I do these things. So you see that going on where they don't know what to say. Because they're kind of between what you would call a rock and a hard place. They're, they're in a tough situation. Because Jesus is going to address this thing. John the Baptist came saying the disciples, uh, and others would have heard this, of course, but that when John the Baptist came on the scenes, like he's baptizing and he's calling people to repent, to prepare the way of the Lord. He's looking for the coming uh, uh, one. He's calling out to them and he's saying, hey, you repent and be baptized in preparation for um, the coming of, of the, the, the Lord and the Christ that was to come. And so, not only that, Jesus was baptized by him. And so all that stuff's going on, and you see this on display. And John the Baptist, even, he had problems with the Pharisees and Sadducees. At one time he said, you brood of vipers. That's what he called them. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So they knew he had a problem with them. They did not embrace him. Also, in John 1.29, John the Baptist said about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So he's preaching this message uh, of the gospel, and it's coming in a clear way. And so all of this is going on. They know that they can't side. Either side's going to mess them up. And so they do not answer. Now, sometimes I think when you're looking at your own life, you think, what kind of authority do I have? Maybe some of you think, I'm big time at my work. Some of you may think that way at your home. Some of you may have some kind of thing in your broader family where you're so important or whatever. But the reality is, is um, if you retire or get fired or get sick or have your kids grow up, if that's your place of authority, right, um, you will find out real quick that your authority can erode. And that's kind of where these people are. Um, in Luke 20, it says, Luke records, they said to themselves, if we say for man, all the people will stone us to death. So they're, they're on like not good ground. That's kind of what you would say. And this whole thing of like these religious leaders like f falling really from their glory is a frightening thing for them and for the whole system. The whole system is going to come crumbling down. Now Jesus, instead of telling them where his authority came from, he did tell his disciples that by what authority he did these things. And not only that, with his disciples, and I think that's important to say, with his disciples, um, he, like we talked about, he gave them authority. And then he says at the end, all authority in heaven and on earth, I'm, I'm giving to you. Go and make disciples of all nations. And you see that throughout. So we have this confrontation and this counter. And the counter with Jesus is just to ask them one question, and they would not answer it. So they're not going to hang around. But then, as you're looking at this, I think it's important that you understand, um, really, he's going to condemn what they've done. And when you're looking at that, I think it's important just to say that Jesus begins with a story, and he's going to talk to us in a parable. He's going to use a parable. He's a great storyteller, and he can, like, make you, just shock you. Sometimes you go back and just read the parables, you'll be amazed. There's, there really hasn't been a parable for a long time in Mark, but now it comes up here, and... Um, 
it's like the disciples knew what was going to happen, but now uh, it's becoming more and more clear. And so this story is in Matthew and in Luke and in Mark, and it's about the death of Christ and how the religious leaders will participate in that. And so um, I think it's important to say, uh, when we look at this vineyard, just real quick, you can hold your place and turn to Isaiah 5 or just mark that in your Bible. Isaiah 5, verses 1 and 2. God spoke of his people as a vineyard. Isaiah 5, 1 says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it on, of, of stones and planted it with choice wines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he, he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So this is kind of just a place. Sometimes Jesus will pick up something that's a theme. And what you find out is, He's like, he's created this wonderful vineyard, God has, and yet it didn't, it didn't yield fruit, not the fruit that you would expect. Actually, in Isaiah 5, 7, if you'll flip on down or kind of move down just a little, in verse 7 it says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so that's kind of where we are. Now, today, when we're looking at this, we're talking about the vine dressers. We're talking about those who are supposed to be working the soil, preparing everything together here. And notice what it says. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. This is kind of an interesting thing. If you've ever been to wine country, you realize if you were to meet the owners, generally speaking, uh, there are wealthy people who have purchased a vineyard. And then uh, generally, I don't know that they're out there working it in the same way, but they have people working those things and preparing them and, and working in those places. And so this is leased to tenants. The person lives in another country, and they're really just going to come back and send people back for the fruit. And what we see here is, is um, these people, like there's a tower there, and you'll, you'll notice that. It's kind of, it has everything that a good vineyard would have. A fence around it to keep things from coming in. A tower so you could see what might be coming in so that you could protect it. Uh, sometimes the people would live there as a tenant, and they would watch over it and make sure nothing came in to take it. And so this was common, like I said, among wealthier people. Look at verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now, this is interesting because you think, what? This guy goes away, provides this place for these people. He goes away and... This is going to take several years. When it's time to get fruit, they're like, we're not giving him anything. And in some ways saying something like, we don't owe him anything. Did he do anything for this place? When in reality, he spent the money to buy it and set it up. But in their minds, they've been working the vine and probably, like I said, for several years. And their response is shocking. They beat on the first guy. Then on the second person, it's like they're punching him and striking him. Like it's it's a it's a really rough. Like and and really maybe even like bashed in his head. That's kind of the picture here. 
So you're listening to this thinking like, what, are, what is going on? These people are horrible. But it, doesn't, it gets worse. They send another servant, and he kills the servant. And so, like Matthew says, they stoned this servant to death. There's nothing that the servant's done wrong, but they've done wrong. And at this point, you might be asking, like, why does he not hire cowboys and send them over there to, like, lead these people to their bitter end? Like, that's what my natural response would be. Or a company of soldiers and say, listen, go and kill those people. I'm not putting up with them ever again. But the man does the unexpected. Look what he does. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those servants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What would the owner of that vineyard do? He would come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to the others. So what happens here? This is, the, this is crazy. In this part of the story, you would be gasping. Like, what kind of story is this? What kind of man is this that would go and, like, in a way, give these guys another chance by sending his own son? They didn't even... They killed the son, and then they threw him out of the vineyard for the, for the like, birds to go and eat his flesh. That's kind of the way you would see this. They didn't even bother burying him they 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 presented him as a cursed man and look what happens here in Matthew I'll just mention to you Matthew 21 it says they said to him like the religious leaders almost blurted out something crazy like they weren't they weren't thinking about it being them and they said he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him their fruits in their season it's almost like Matthew's like uh, he's explained to you what these religious leaders are thinking. They're thinking what you're thinking. This reminds you of David where Nathan the prophet says, what should someone do? And he says, they should, they should do this. Find the man and I'll take him out. Okay, so what do we do with this? You ready? The planter is God. The vineyard is God's people. The tenants are the spiritual leaders. The harvest is spiritual fruit. The servants the Old Testament prophets. Remember them going in one by one? They would keep going, keep calling the people back. In God's kindness, He would send them over and over and over. And they did all kinds of things. Many believe that from, because of the, um, the commentary by the Jewish people, the Talmud, they believe that um, Isaiah was sawn in two. All of those things started happening to the prophets, and they kept doing it. Over hundreds of years. Finally, God sent His Son, Jesus. And we know it's His Son because He says in Mark 1.11, this is my beloved Son. And then in Mark 9.7 at the transfiguration, this is my beloved Son. The destruction of the tenants. This is, I think, what you would say will happen in AD 70 when the temple will be completely destroyed. Now, the new tenants, who's he going to give it to? I've already said he's going to give it to the apostles. And he's going to give it to those who follow in his name. He's going to give it to the church, the apostles' message, 
there's a replacement that's going to take place. And this is what you see. The true temple, as we talked about last week, and the new temple and new leaders. So the true temple being Jesus establishes a new temple, which is his church, with new leaders within it. And, and really, in one sense, there's these spiritual leaders, but then there's also like we're all spiritual people. We are all saints of God. We are all children of God, and we are all in the temple, working in the temple. So notice verse 10 and 11. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in their eyes. You know what he picks up? When he first came into Jerusalem, they were singing from Psalm 118. And now he brings up Psalm 118 and he says, you know that stone that the builders rejected? That's the cornerstone. You know the one that they threw outside of, this, uh, of the vineyard? That's the cornerstone. God took this cornerstone, the one thrown away, the one cursed to die, and he established something new, a new temple. And it was marvelous in their eyes. He's the great high priest. He's the final sacrifice. He's the one that, whose blood truly was effective. He is the Passover lamb who would take away the sins of the world. The new temple, the new temple is seen here. It's being birthed here. It's going to emerge in before us. And not only that, the foundation stones will be the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. And the, the, um, the stones, the living stones, will be his church. And so just you want to think about that. Because 1 Peter 2, 4, and 5 says this, And you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but not in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Every time you gather, every time we gather together, every time we sing these songs and we recount what He's done, every time we take the Lord's Supper, every time we speak the words of the Lord, every time we do that, we are before the throne of God above and we are praising and honoring Him. The Scriptures tell us that we are. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as strangers and aliens to abstain from the passions of your flesh. And instead, what? Be light. Be light in this world. Be a blessing. Listen to Ephesians 2, 19-22. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens of the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We're dwelling with him now. We experience the presence of God now. We know that presence and the power that's on display. Now listen, when you get to verse 12, the people, uh, these religious leaders are scared and they're going to go away for another day. But I would say to you, as you're looking at this today, if you're in Christ, you are, if you are in Christ, you have this, this hope that is so sure that you're, you're dwelling with Him now. You're afraid, you're dwelling with Him now. You're frightened, you're dwelling with Him now. You're concerned about the sin that you've committed that can't be forgiven. You're in Christ now. Turn to Him now. Trust Him now. Believe in Him now. He is 
drawing his people in, and his people come in knowing that the final sacrifice has taken place. There's need for no other. He is with us now. He is interceding for us now. You you can know that truth. He is the priest forever now. Stop. Some of you may be holding a sin against your brother or sister. You need to say, let me go and look again. Christ died. His sacrifice was accepted. God accepted. Whether you accept it or not doesn't matter. God accepted it. Christ is interceding now. He is interceding on our behalf now. Whether or not you believe that is a matter of faith, not a matter of fact. He is doing that now. He has established a new temple, and whether you think the church stinks or not, the reality is the church is his temple. The church is in his presence. The church is ministering now. And you and I need to respond properly thanking God for what he has done, trusting in this supernatural work that he's doing now. It's happening before your very eyes. And you ought to walk in that, treasure that, love that, encourage others in that, minister to one another in those truths. It is far greater than what was before. Some people think about the temple and the passive as if it were something great. It was flawed, but the one who is not flawed has established something new, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And when it's not, confess, Lord, it's not marvelous to me. Let me see. Help my unbelief now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for wisdom to see that even today as we take the Lord's Supper, that we would see that the sacrifice was made. Sin was atoned for. We are not trying to atone for our sins. We are celebrating that Jesus has atoned for our sins. We are not sitting here wondering, has God accepted it? When Jesus said it was finished and the veil of the temple was torn in two, you said you accepted it. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it proved that we are justified, legally declared right, right now, right now. When we walk into his presence, when we pray before him, he hears us right now. Let us see that, Lord. Let us not be foolish, but faithful in our beliefs about what you say about the new temple, about the ultimate sacrifice, about the great high priest, and about the fact that we are dwelling with him now. In Christ's name, amen.